welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Dario Linares. So, it's uh, episode two of our London Film Festival coverage. Um, it's now the day after, so we're on the, the Monday. Um, I went to the, the Knives Out premiere last night, which maybe I'll talk a little bit about towards the end of the, the podcast, but we've got um, a few interviews to come, the centrepiece of which is Savina talking to the director of Triangle of Sadness, uh, Ruben Osland. And uh, yeah, a really insightful uh, piece of tape there that I think you'll you'll really enjoy. Again, I think Savina is so good at um, understanding how to approach an interview from a kind of cinematologist standpoint. So some really good questions, and they get into the the real nitty gritty about what the what the film tries to do. So it's a great twenty minutes, and uh, we're really lucky to have it. I also spoke to a student of mine called Tom Wright, who is one of our kind of early stars. Um, at Ravensbourne, he's in only in his first year, but he's uh, a very bright prospect and has already made a, a feature film off his own back, which is uh, pretty incredible, really. But he was really superb and uh, interesting on the films that he'd seen as part of the BFI um, Academy program, um, which gives the opportunity for young filmmakers and critics to get access to the press and industry screenings. But first of all, I talked to Trisha Tull who is the director of the festival and the outgoing director. So this is the final year in her tenureship. And yeah, it was just really great that she gave me a little bit of time, you know, on the Friday, literally before the final weekend, which must be the most stressful and um, intense, intensely pressured moment, uh, maybe of the, apart from opening night, it must be the, you know, the most intensely pressured uh, moment of the festival for, for her. And, you know, probably emotional because she's leaving. So, uh, yeah, it was great of her to give me just a few minutes to to talk about her approach to the job that she's been doing over the last five years as director and then um, as uh, deputy director the five years before that. Um, So, yeah, let's start with that now. This is me with Trisha Tuttle. Uh, Tricia, I know you're busy, but thanks very much for taking the time out to do this. Sure. Glad to be here. So I'm not one for the ins and outs of festival uh, administration or politics, but I'm right in saying this is your last at the helm of LFF. So I was just wondering how you were feeling coming into the, the final weekend of your tenureship. Good. I mean, I, you know, it, 10 years, I was five years as deputy head of festivals, five years as director. That feels like a really great time. I feel um, really happy that I've made a mark on the festival and helped develop it into something. Um, it was. It's always been a great festival. I've always been an admirer of the festival. Um, but I, when I came in, I came, I wanted to develop the festival in two ways or three ways actually, but one was really opening it up to new audiences and um, the UK-wide expansion of the festival is something that we were really keen to do and also um, just communicating to all audiences that the festival is for them and it's really like opening night, opening with something like Matilda is a really important part of that, sure. to sort of communicate to young audiences, to family audiences that the fest- there's something at the festival for them. It really... It, we were doing that in little ways all over the festival, but opening night was a big, strong statement about access and, you know, welcoming everyone. Um, and also I really wanted to expand to XR and immersive and series, which we've done in the last couple of years. So I feel 
sad to go, but I'm going to enjoy it from um, sitting in the audience in the next few years. And I feel like I've been able to make a mark. To be honest with you, some might say five years is quite a short time, but I read some of your comments about passing on the baton and, and without sort of blowing smoke up your backside or anything. That's, that's quite a generous way to think about such a prestigious job that many would give their right arm for. Yeah, I mean, well, thank, thank you. I mean, I believe in it. And when I took the job, I thought five to seven years um, max. And I, you know, I've, I've seen people get into positions of cultural, um, where they hold a lot, quite a lot of cultural power and stay sure. too long. Um, and I, I really do believe it's important, particularly with programming and festivals um, and key cultural jobs, leadership jobs, that you have new ideas and, and new voices coming through. I really, I really do. So it would have been incredible. And I've always said that it would have been incredibly hypocritical of me not to stand by that. Um, <laughs> five, five feels good. I mean, you know, I might have gone to seven, but because I do feel like we've been able to achieve some of the things I wanted to. And also, to be honest, you know, during the pandemic, it was took a lot of energy. I feel like I've done 10 years and five actually too. I'm fascinated all the time when speaking to people who are in big institutional or public service jobs. And in, I mean, this is kind of a little bit like that quasi like that maybe, but yeah. you know, the, the labor that the director of a big f film festival has to do. I mean, I imagine the last couple of months is a lot of administrative and lo logistical legwork, not to mention the pressure of the, the festival itself. But I also see your name on many of the online film descriptions. I mean, for you, is that still the best part of the job, the programming and the thinking about the films themselves? Yeah, definitely. I mean, every festival director, depending on the scale and the type of their festival, every festival director will have a different set of responsibilities. But we, we have a, a three-part leadership structure. So I um, have two people who almost act as de deputies in, in a way. One of them does um, business and operations and the other does production. And I lead the program teams. Um, and the program teams, that programming is really, um, really exciting. You know, it's it's the, the reason people usually want the job is because they get to view films, talk about films, write about films, think about how to position them for an audience and connect those filmmakers and audiences. And that is the thing that um, I think, you know, every festival director loves most. Absolutely. How difficult is it to balance the fact that on the one hand, LFF is you know, a celebrity event and part of what you have to do is get glamorous stars in front of cameras and audiences, but then also promoting smaller films and filmmakers whose work often has an expressly political or cultural intent. Yeah, I mean, I think keep, keeping balance is important. I mean, we, it's not it's not really our job to get the celebrities. I mean, we, we program the films and the distributors and rights holders who work with us. It's a big, important moment for them in terms of launching the film. So, I mean, it's great for the festival. It's great for the profile of the festival, but it's the distributors who do all the work getting, you know, when you see Florence Pugh at, um, at Timothy Chalamet on a red carpet, that is the work of, of the distributors. And it's an important promotional moment. But yeah, I mean, I, I've always seen um, London Film Festival, even before I was the director, I've seen that part of the festival as a bit of a, a Trojan horse in many ways. Like those are the films that the audience, they catch audiences' eyes first because they're starting to hear about them and are more aware of them. Those are the films that the press tend to write about. And what you do, hopefully, is take people on a journey from those films deeper into the program and 
you know, try to raise awareness of a much broader, incredibly rich range of, of work. Um, and then there are people who come to the festival not for the, you know, the Florence Pugh films or the Timothy Chalamet films at all. They're coming because they want to see, and many, many audiences, this is true of them, they're coming because they want to see films that they're not going to get to see anywhere else um, later in the year. You know, these are, these are films which are, um, well, if they have a release at all in the UK, it'll be very, very small. Um, so the festival provides that opportunity. What I love about the festival, and I always loved it as an audience member, is there are really like a hundred different London film festivals, depending on who you are and what you're looking for and what kinds of tickets you buy. It's like my experience of the festival as an audience member will be very different from yours. And I love that the festival can provide that sort of range of range of pathways, depending on what people are interested in. Kind of following on from that, I, I really liked your statement about Jaffa Panahi, who is under arrest again in Iran, mm. and then also the the statement in solidarity with the largely women Iranian protesters. And the, the festival's screening quite a few Iranian films, including Ali Abbas's Holy Spider, which is getting great reviews, of course. I mean, these are topical yeah. films, to be sure. How important is it for you to support artistic freedom, not just in terms of, say, filmmakers from uh, authoritarian regimes, but in a different way, the kind of maybe the kind of censorialism that is perhaps creeping in 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 various guises in the West? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, cinema has always been a space like all great art. Cinema has always been a space where artists can challenge our ways of seeing the world, they can challenge um, the status quo, they can challenge voices of authority, they can help us see the world in a different way. And um, I think it's hugely important that we continue to provide a space for artists to do that. It's not, you know, we felt very clear the other day when we um, stood in support of, of Jaffa and and Mohammed Rasulov as well too, that, you know, it's not, it's not our... His fight, his political fight is not our political fight to, you know, to wage, but we are there to support him and uh, try to elevate him and give him a platform to say what he, he needs to say. Um, there is some criticism always of festivals for, you know, presenting a political point of view. But I think our job is to provide a platform for artists to speak openly and honestly about the world that we live in. Um, yeah, censoring art, um, there is, there's no place for that in a film festival. And we do need to stand for, um, for artists who are challenging the ways we see the world. Unfortunately, Dario, the other thing I would say too, is it's really unfortunately, you know, as you said in your question is we are in a world right now where, um, all, you know, all over our abilities to um, speak these kinds of truths are being limited. You know, there are a lot of filmmakers um, in other parts of the world as well, too, who are being arrested or censored or in, in many different kinds of ways. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's important that festivals stand up for that. Yeah, no, I, I, I couldn't agree with that more. Just a couple of uh, final things. Whilst LFF has been going on, we heard the news about Edinburgh Filmhouse and the film festival closure yeah. there. And, you know, when you're in London and you're in the middle of the festival, it always feels so exciting and buoyant. But cinema going in the UK still has generally really a lot of problems and issues. So from your perspective now, coming to the end of your, your tenureship here, from your perspective, what kind of concerns does this closure raise about film festival culture and UK cinema going generally, would you say? 
I think, um, you know, it is, as my chief executive said the other day, that a lot of people are are sort of very worried about this because they're seeing it as a sort of canary in a coal mine. And it, it might well be that. I mean, first thing I'd say is how devastating for the more than 100 people who've lost their jobs, how devastating for communities in Edinburgh and in Aberdeen who've lost absolutely vital cultural spaces for showing great cinema. How devastating is it for the UK that we've lost the Edinburgh Film Festival? Well, I do hope that those, you know, those three uh, cultural spaces will have a future. I think, you know, there are probably some business things that I hope that Creative Scotland will be looking at. Um, I hope, I don't know, it's, it's quite hard to talk about. I think there's sort of two things. I mean, that Right now, the UK is, as you say, really cultural cinema is really struggling. It's getting better slowly over the last couple of years. It really is. Um, the last, it's been very, very tough, and the cultural recovery funds have kept lots of cinemas alive. But I, you know, I believe and I hope that cinemas are going to be able to weather this. They are such important spaces. And you're right, London is where. Um, you know, it's much easier. It's always been much easier to get audiences to come see cultural cinema in London than it is um, in, in in other parts, in most other parts of the UK. But there are some great, strong venues that are struggling but fighting back. And and you're seeing green shoots like Home in Manchester, um, the GFT, the Glasgow Film Theatre in Glasgow, Watershed in Bristol. I mean, these places are all around the UK and. Yes, it's been tough for them, but I really, really hope that both Edinburgh Film House and the Aberdeen um, Belmont will rise rise with other, um, maybe with other leadership. Just finally, I was going to ask you about the last five years and your legacy, but you've kind of answered that in terms of diversity and expanding the cinema program in, in many ways. So maybe, I don't know, you've probably got a thousand memories, I'm sure, um, from the festival over the years, but are there any particular stories or events that that stand out to you during that time okay so a couple of a couple of moments um neither one of them are when i've been director um they were when i was deputy head of festivals um but two really really amazing moments that i remember remember in the festival um one is when we screened whiplash damien chazelle's second feature i think it's a second feature and we um and we knew how great the film was. We knew how special that it was gonna be. And we decided, even though it was screening in Odeon Leicester Square, um, and we didn't typically do Q and A's after films there, we decided to bring him back on because we thought the audience would have a very strong emotional reaction. And the reception he got, honestly, I've almost never seen something like that. I mean, they just stomped and cheered and whooped and people just went wild for the film. That was great to see. That was like, you know, you knew that you were witnessing with the film as well too. You knew you were witnessing the birth of a, of a major, major filmmaker and the way audiences responded to it was was fantastic. Another moment was a surprise, surprise film. And I think it might've been um, 2017 or 18. And it was Lady Bird uh, was our surprise film. And we played the film and then brought um, Greta Gerwig and Saoirse Ronan on stage after the film for a Q&A. And the audience just went wild for that too. It's such a special film. Um, and there was so much love um, and excitement in the room for Greta and Saoirse. Both of those are amazing moments, memories I have. 
Fantastic. Well, I'm sure it'll be a hell of a party for you this weekend. I might try and strong arm a ticket from you when we finish recording. But thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. Cheers. That's what this book is really about. The book is about me. Those seizures are a sign of something far more serious. You will end up with a much worse condition. I can't do that. I have a daughter to raise. I have to go away. No matter how hard things get, we can never give up. It's gonna be fine. So it's Saturday evening. I'm sat in the uh, BFI bar after doing a long day of work, I'll have you know, on uh, the open day at university, but it's nice to have a drink now. And I'm sat actually with a student of, of mine, not that I possess him or anything, but he's on the, the course that I'm teaching, which is unusual for the Cinematologist podcast. So I want to welcome Tom Wright. Hello. Thank you for having me on. I'm very excited to talk about the London Film Festival today. Great. No, no, it's great to, to have you on to talk and give your kind of perspective about some of the stuff that you've uh, seen. But you've actually got press and industry accreditation here, right? And that's through something called the, the BFI Academy. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so the BFI Film Academy is something that's set up for people aged 16 to 25. And they, they offer all sorts of opportunities for, opportunities for people like within that age bracket. I think the biggest thing they do is offer like a short course that everyone can do and it's set up through um, different parts of the country. So I did it in Leeds. But the other thing they offer, like at the BFI South Bank, alongside the £3 tickets normally, is an accreditation badge, which basically means that anyone 16 to 25 who's interested in the industry or is a student of film can go to any screening that's in the press and industry thing for about 30 quid. So it's like... Basically, you can see as many films as you want and you just scan your badge and you get let in. I mean, the only thing is that I have to go a little bit later than everyone else. I guess the actual press have to go in before me. But apart from that, it's been it's been really amazing um, sort of to be given the opportunity to see all these films. Um, and actually with press and industry people there, like it just makes it feel more tangible as well. And I think that's a really good thing for like young people to be allowed to do. So have you got any, have you heard any conversations from the industry hacks about any of the films that they've seen, you know, I don't know, slagging anything off or really rating something at all? I think the most, the most polarizing exit from a film was probably The Whale, the Aronofsky film, of the ones that I saw. Um, there was definitely people, there was people in there that were sat crying at the end and there was people coming out sort of saying it was a load of nonsense. Um, and, you know, when you're seeing a film at half eight in the morning that is like The Whale, if anyone's seen it, I can understand why you have that sort of reaction. And I think, I think it definitely speaks something about, like, the nature and how we watch films and how film festivals have a particularly, like, different 
like way of like interacting, especially for the press, because you're watching so many films a day starting so early. So like all your emotions are like heightened and things like this. So then if you go in and see Brendan Fraser doing like whatever he does for like an hour and a half in his like, like is it, I can understand like these sort of polarizing reactions to films and it makes a lot more sense why things get booed and clapped at Cannes and things like this, I think. So it's been quite an eye-opening experience in that way, but no, definitely The Whale had the most like polarizing. And what, and what did you make of The Whale? I thought it was a very like, I didn't think it was clever as it thought it was, clearly, but I have that with most of Aronofsky's films. However, I thought that like, as like a visceral piece of filmmaking, it really like affected me on a level that was like very emotional. I, yeah, I hear it's very melodramatic. Yeah, very melodramatic, but in a way that like, I kind of respected it. Um, and, I, and I think like, yeah, I think if I intellectualized it, I'd probably wouldn't like it as much as I did, but I felt emotional at the end of the film and it had an effect on me, so I can't lie about the effect that it had on me, so. No, it's a really interesting point that you made there about the watching in a festival situation rather than in, you know, do you just pick something and you go and watch it at any, at any given point, or indeed even watching something in the university. But um, is this the first festival you've been to? I mean, we, we, we immediately struck up a conversation the other day because you're from Leeds and so am I, and now we're both in London, but I don't know if you've been to the Leeds Festival or any others uh, before this one. So yeah, I've been to the Leeds Film Festival. I went one year properly to see quite a few films because I was part of a group there that was also funded by the BFI and also sort of rang alongside the Film Academy. And with that group, we showed a film every month. And But part of the benefit was that I got to go to see 10 free films at the Leeds Film Festival. But that that was those access to public screenings and it doesn't have the same sort of press and industry there like it does in London. And obviously they don't have headline galas and things like that. So it was just going to see a few films. Whereas London Film Festival has felt completely different and probably much more in the line of how, yeah, other festivals sort of operate. So, no, it's been a very sort of interesting experience, completely different to Leeds Film Festival. As much as I do like that festival as well, like there's nice cinemas there, but no, London's been completely different. And there's a certain excitement and reality to the industry, like when you're in London watching films, because like you know, you can watch a film and then go down to the South Bank and then see the person who made the film. Like I went to go see Noah Baumbach and I saw Greta Gerwig after, on the day that I saw White Noise. So it was all like, it makes it more, it's very exciting. Like I'm not into the cult of celebrity, but it's Noah Baumbach. Like I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go see him there. Yeah. So you haven't, you haven't been to the, the, um, the overpass here where they, they have the red carpet and stood there for hours watching people walk up because I've, I've passed through it but I never I make a point never to stop because I, I hate being considered a kind of uh, you know star star screwer in that sense you know no no I, I, I hate being considered like that as well the only the only one I went to was Greta Gerwig and her band back for white noise just just to, just to see them um, and that was amazing actually to see them because I'm, I'm like a big fan of both their work like acting and like you know their sort of history and I I just thought I, I have to see this, but it's very, it's a very strange thing where like people will stand, like people will get on the carpet and then like shout the name of the celebrity they want to like come over. And it's a very, it's a very odd thing. I didn't really know what was going on. I was like, I really hope I never do that. I want to be, I want to be the one on the carpet maybe, but I don't like, but I don't. Hey, listen, you're on the cinematologist podcast now. That's the zenith of coolness in my view, you know what I mean? But I would say that. Um, so, so why don't you t tell us about, um, you know, one or two films that you've really kind of liked while you've been here? Uh, okay, this is hard. I would have to say my favorite film of the festival that I've seen is Mark Jenkins' Ennis Men. That was easily not not quite as good as Bait, but it's that's a hard, that's a high bar to hit. But it was on the same level, and I just thought it was it was such a pure form of filmmaking. And 
when I when I see a film like that, it just reminds me of like how powerful every aspect of film can be in terms of like narrative, in terms of cinematography, in terms of editing. And I feel like like every time you watch a Mark Jenkins film, you're reminded of the whole history of cinema, like from from sort of Russian montage editing all the way through to like sort of present day fears of like isolation and all these themes are built into the film. And so that was easily like one of the most impressive things and I, I think he's like a great talent, um, one of the best filmmakers working today. Yeah, well, we're biased in that regard because, uh, you know, we're good friends of Mark Jenkins on, on this podcast. So that wasn't a solicited response at all. And uh, yeah, I was, I was I was disappointed that we, we didn't manage to hook up for a coffee, but he was just, apparently it was just bedlam with uh, his press for, for the film, which people are going crazy for. And yeah, what's interesting to me is actually Bait was incredibly successful and, and, you know, a kind of high benchmark and sort of made him in, in many ways in terms of, you know, recognition. But in some ways, I think Ennis Men is even more interesting, you know, uh, or Ennis Main, I should say, is even more interesting, particularly for me in terms of kind of the idea of time and, and the way that it's, it, it's sort of this, this sort of sense of cyclical nature of our experiences and, the, and this kind of, I found it really kind of philo- philosophical in that sense. So, yeah, we're looking forward to having him on and having a, a full episode on his, on, on Ennis Main, hopefully in, in, in January at some, at some point. So what else did you like? Oh, this is like, this is very hard. I also really liked um, White Noise. That was the Baumbach film. Have you read the book by any chance? I've not, but I, I went and like I'm probably going to buy a copy and go and read it because I was like I have to like read this book. But I would say I'd say also um, the Band of She's of Inishin. So I'm a big McDonough, Martin McDonough fan. Um, I've read most of his plays and seen a couple of his plays online. And I thought this film this film felt the closest to his play writing as well, and it felt the most. Because his films are good, but I feel like there's something lost. Whereas here, he captures some of the earnestness of his like early plays and some of the like more emotional gravitas. And I thought it was a very mature film. Um, and I and I thought the performances, having obviously Colin Fowle and Brendan Gleeson come back, it just felt like it felt like a sort of repertoire play company sort of coming together to sort of create this like just this piece that he's sort of developed. Yeah, I mean. I, I... I saw it again in the morning, so it was interesting to sort of... I think you were probably in the same screening as me, actually. Um, and it just reminded me how how clearly and superbly crafted uh, a joke has to be to kind of land. You know what I mean? You know, can talk about sort of improvisational and stuff like that, and there's a little bit of that. But you could clearly see that here is a writer who knows exactly how to pace uh, an interaction between two people. And, of course, then you've got you know, Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, who are able to embody the dialogue in such an amazing way. And don't get me wrong, I think it's amazingly, uh, amazingly crafted and amazingly acted in that in that sense. My one caveat for, for it was, I did find it a little bit maudlin, a little bit melancholy. And I think that that, the whole, you know, without sort of giving it away, it's a very simple conceit, isn't it? It's like two two friends who have basically fallen out or one doesn't want to engage in the relationship anymore so there's that idea about cutting people out of your life who don't serve any purpose but then there's also this sort of conversation about the idea of leaving a legacy and doing work you know whether it's composing or writing or whatever it might be and whether that has more or less value than just being friends with somebody and I found at the end it was kind of like I didn't know where he came down on that question do you know what I mean yeah it, it's a very it was a very tragic film like to watch actually there's nothing more there's nothing worse than the idea that someone could suddenly stop talking to you and it it captures that feeling perfectly and yeah it does have like 
a sense of ambiguity that maybe isn't even like meant to be there. But it's more, I appreciated like how kind of brave it went down. Like it wasn't even, I know it felt, it felt a lot less like crazy or like, like even audience pleasing in a way. So even though the jokes were still there in a way that obviously made everyone laugh, the narrative itself was a very like was kind of abstract. Like without the jokes and his kind of almost start, it would be really depressing. Yeah. A really depressing film about people like isolated. And I think so. I'm making a tangential point here, but I think this is definitely like a post-COVID, I guess, festival because there are so many films that are about isolation that like like this is clearly like in the zeitgeist like to a degree that's very very noticeable like with from Ennis Men to like women talking to to bandishes to to all these kind of ideas and even white noise to a degree um and i think it's been very sort of interesting to see the trends and you get that going to a film festival like in the moment like, and you kind of understand like even though it's not a conscious thing these things still exist and you definitely get that going to a festival so finally, anything that I mean, we've talked there about some kind of big films. Is there anything that's kind of smaller that you you didn't expect or you went into not knowing much about and you thought that was really good? Oh, oh my! I can't believe I forgot this. So there's there's a Godland. That was a fantastic film. It's a sweet. Did you have you seen it? So it's a Swedish film. No, a Danish, Danish, Icelandic film about the first Danish priest that travelled to Iceland to build a church. And it's based on the first ever pictures taken of Iceland that he did with like one of the old cameras where you just you just expose it to light and then put it back. So the film is based around these images. It's in about a four by three aspect ratio. It's about two and a half hours long and it's quite slow, but it's absolutely amazing. They're just walking across these Icelandic things. And it's just about, I don't know, just, I just find it like a very visceral thing. And it's all, and it's just about his like struggle with faith and, and, but his his art as well, the sort of commitment to like, walk, like walking and nearly dying just to get this one photo. And I thought, I don't know, that was a very powerful film. And then the small, a really small film I saw was um, called Carnival, A People's History of Haiti in Six Chapters. It was, it was like a fine, like the documentary making is like sort of standard BBC stuff. But just, I just find it very interesting about just how... I think remind me what documentary does well is that it makes you sort of understand other other cultures in a way that's like not not sort of like forcing upon you just showing you how it is and I and it showed them how they relate to their like troubled history because they were enslaved and they were colonized and all these sort of things but they embrace it and they build costumes around it and they teach this they teach each other about their history and I thought it was very interesting just just what the documentary was saying and what it was showing about their sort of celebratory nature despite this country of being you know, in poverty from either dictators within their own country or people coming from outside the country, but how they how they deal with these sort of sort of setbacks and just make it joyous was something very. It was quite a nice thing to see at the end of the day, and that's that was a pretty small film, so people should watch that one. That's great, Tom. Well, um, yeah, amazing sort of comments there on 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 the films that you've seen, and uh, yeah, <laughs> I'll see you I'll see you on Monday probably at the university. Yeah, I'll see you on Monday as well. So it's the final day of the London Film Festival and I'm here to wrap everything up, so to speak, uh, with Savina Petkova. Hi Savina, how are you? Hi Dario, I can't believe it's already the end of the festival. I mean, I've been wishing it to end for so long now. 
<laughs> no, I've had a really good time, but it always feels like the end is crept up super fast. Yeah, I mean, we're we're recording this remotely now, and um, that's because it's just there's just been so much going on, and we haven't been able to kind of get a time in between to be able to record anything. But um, yeah, it's it's been an interesting one because I think everything kind of has happened quite late on for me, and then you know, this I've just texted you before that this morning I've got confirmed I got a ticket for the final gala, and then I've just realised I've had a problem that I haven't had for about fifteen or twenty years, which is I have nothing to wear. You know what I mean? So I'm kind of like, oh shit, I better try and sort. <laughs> out um so that kind of got in the way of uh of this recording but last minute sweet hunting i know it's like pff, who, who knew what that would happen um <laughs> but we're gonna first of all introduce your the main centerpiece of this episode which is your conversation with ruben osland of course who directed triangle of sadness which won the big prize in can his second can win he seems to be a big favorite yeah yeah, I think he's really worked it down how to how to do stuff now. <laughs> he's got it. He's got it wrapped up around his finger. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's there's a little bit of an irony there as well, you know, because Cannes is not exactly the the. I mean, they, they do like working class directors and working class films there because they love Ken Loach as well. But it's kind of ironic that this is a a, a film that really pokes fun, you know, at the billionaire class, let's say. And um, I was going to ask actually, you've done a lot of re- interviews for written pieces let's say but this is was your first podcast recording interview i think i'm right in saying where you were kind of had the recorder and were ready to go did, did you have that the anxiety that i have which is shit i hope this tapes and uh, and then trying to make sure i've got the right questions to go and everything yeah it was quite interesting for me to observe myself being in this this situation for the first time ever and to be fair i enjoyed it quite a lot um it really takes off a lot of the pressure of later transcribing and being um, being too picky with the material that you get. So I was looking forward to Ruben being the first p- person I would interview off the cuff. And I mean, the challenges were there for sure, just trying out the mic 15 times. But <laughs> the most interesting thing for me was the, the, the spatial dimensions, how that changed with the taping itself. Because I had to keep him very close <laughs> to yeah, hand yeah, him yeah, the yeah. mic, and um, yeah, so we weren't really separated by a table anymore. Not everyone was kind of sloshed in their chairs in a more relaxed manner. We were more engaged, uh, looking into each other's eyes mercifully. No, I'm joking. It was a really, really good atmosphere, and Ruben was very generous with his question, with his answers to my questions, and. Getting the questions properly phrased, that was a big <laughs> that was a big one for me. But I think I managed not to go off on tangents and we kind of understood each other quite well and that helped a lot. Yeah, no, it was really great because it was a it was a cinematologist type of interview because you did have a conversation and you interrupted and you, you know, you sort of commented on his comments and stuff like that. But yeah, it sounds like it was a it was a very hard walled room because there is a little bit of echo there so it's good that you got right right up so you can hear it clearly but you can definitely tell that you were trying to make sure that you uh you got him uh, you got him on 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 tape but some really you know some really interesting um points that were made by both of you which we can uh, pick up afterwards but let's just get into it so this is savina and ruben osland
So your films have been interpreted a lot as satire and form of criticism of social roles and structures, right? Mm. But um, I was thinking maybe start off with something a bit different, um, which has to do with a tagline in your film in part of the fashion show. Cynicism masked as optimism. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you, Ruben, are you an optimist? Yes, I'm definitely. I am an optimist, but I, I hope that I'm not uh, masquerading any cynicism <laughs> because I'm actually is an optimist. I think that we work really good together. We collaborate great. Uh, human beings are great in like taking care of each other. Uh, but uh, there's also something about us that power corrupts us and uh, if we don't fight uh, corruption and inequality, inequality will happen in between us. Yeah. <clears throat> like when it comes to that, um, that uh, quote, uh, uh, cynicism, ma optimism masqueraded as, no, cynicism masqueraded as optimism. Yeah. Uh, I felt that it's pointing out something about our times when it comes to this, you know, fashion brands uh, marketing them with uh, like the stop climate change and yeah, sustainable fashion, greenwashing, whitewashing, all these same yeah. kind of things that that uh, like it's it's a thumbs up society, but at the same time, like uh, it's about selling products, yeah. and uh, uh, that is for me what that line is about. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking also about the. Cynicism behind post irony in yeah. this day and age that we're living in. Yeah, we're supposed to be beyond <clears throat> ironic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> when I was pitching the film, uh, and I pitched the film for uh, people in my generation, I told okay. uh, like people in the, born in the seventies that <clears throat> okay, it's about Carl and Yaya, and they are a branded couple. Uh, and then people from my generation go, oh, well, how horrible, but what about love, you know? <laughs> but then the youngsters, and so the like, youngsters. that makes complete exactly. sense. Exactly, <laughs> so when I teach it to the youngsters, yeah. they call it, yeah, yeah, they're a they go like, uh-huh, okay. Mm. And so on, yeah, and then so what happens? What's, what's the hook, you know? <laughs> so, and I don't know if it's my generation that is naive, or this generation that is cynical, or actually they are just frank. So like, I mean, there's transaction going on in, relationships yeah. and it always have been and uh, if you if you talk about love for example and how we build couple relationship it's very seldom that we get together with someone from a different class yeah. or different part of society unless it's about beauty and sexuality <laughs> so uh, uh, so but I don't look at the next generation as, as cynical uh, I look at the uh, the marketing, the well that, that capitalism have evolved and this unregulated capitalism that makes it not possible for people to live somewhere. Yeah. And uh, it, it's strange where we still believe in like this free market capitalism in all parts of society. Mm -hmm. It's obvious that it's great for some part of society, but other parts of society, unregulated capitalism is, is like creating an unhappy population. Yeah, I was also wondering why you chose to, for your characters to be in the extremes, but not the complete extremes. So we have the, the workers in the boat, let's say, and the rich people on the boat, but we don't see in your films the top 1%, you know, the uber, uber, uber rich. No, not the really, really, really poor as well. We don't see them. So no. you're working with a with a margin. So I was thinking, do you 
think of your characters as types in one way or another, representative of something of this middle? Or how do you come up with that? I think you're right. I think it, it's interesting that you actually see that it's not the ultra, ultra rich that is on the boat. It's like, uh, it's the one that is a little bit beneath mm -hmm. that. But, it, uh, but I think that I used uh, a certain kind of billionaires that maybe were the richest one 10 years ago. Like, for example, mm -hmm. this Russian guy that I've been selling fertilizer. Uh, mm -hmm. And there is an inspiration for that, that character. And uh, um, so, but what was important for me was to not make it into, how to say, an explanation uh, that where I was pointing fingers on individuals and saying, here's a good billionaire and he's a ba bad billionaire. Because I've seen that so much. You know, Bill Gates is a great, yeah. good billionaire. He's a philanthropist. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, then we have uh, Jeff Bezos. He's a bad billionaire. Yeah, okay, let's try to replace him. Have we fixed the problem? <clears throat> so I, I, I really wanted to make all of the characters nice and likable. Mm -hmm. And especially the arms dealers, Copper. I oh love the idea. This is so make. amazing. <laughs> we come from Great Britain. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure people last night really appreciated that. Yeah, bit. yeah. And yeah, and you know, you're sitting with this. They are nice to the crew and the other passengers, and then you ask them, "So, what do you do?" And well, our products have been involved in many conflicts for democracy all over the world. <laughs> what kind of product is that? Basically, the, hand, the hand grenade, dear. The yeah, hand exactly. grenade. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Mm. So the film has a tripartite structure, um, mm. and it's episodic, mm. somewhat similar to your earlier films that are episodic. But mm. it's also three films in this one. So I was just thinking to ask you, how did you decide to keep um, the thorough thread of two characters, Carol and Yaya, connecting these three yeah. layers, and not make three different films? Let's say. Yeah. No, because I think it was important to show how the characters' actions are changing because of which setup they are dealing with. So I, I don't know how much you want to spoil in this, but I have no problem with spoilers. So, no, so you can go whatever ahead. you feel like. Go uh, ahead. <laughs> okay. So in the beginning of the film, you have this female character, Yaya, that is a model. And uh, she's saying, you know, our relationship is just a win-win because it increases our Instagram account. And she, of course, she's joking a little bit also, but she also saying, I'm going to be a trophy wife because that's the only way for me to get out of this business and maintain the lifestyle. And in the end, we are following this couple and the power structure is changing. All of a sudden, it's the women uh, in some sense that have the uh, resources. And uh, what happens is that your, uh, Carl is the one that is actually becoming the trophy wife. Mm -hmm. So that I, then, then it's important to show that the character's behavior is changing because of the position in an economical and a social structure. Mm -hmm. uh, so I always, all, always knew that I wanted to do uh, the two first part with very strong hierarchies, like yeah. the fashion world and a luxury yacht, and then to take away all hierarchies mm -hmm. and start something over. I was thinking about also the if you read them as a hell, purgatory, heaven kind of analogy, at the very end when all structures seem to fall apart, um, it doesn't really quite work at the end, not necessarily. So we seem to be repeating the same mistakes. I was thinking that you think humans really do want paradise. Do we have any kind of problem with voicing our desires, especially desires so tied with economic value as well yeah. today? Well, uh, I, I assume you're talking about like Abigail and uh, yeah. like what's happening on the island a little bit. Um, 
Well, I think that uh, you know, I, I'm, I think that if you want to have an equal society, it's going to be an ongoing struggle because inequality is happening in the same way as gravity is dragging a stone to the ground. Yeah. So it's something that that will be an, uh, uh, a constant struggle. I mean, my mother is. Uh, was uh, becoming a left left wing during the 60s and yeah. she's still one of the few that call herself a communist and I always have felt there's something that is not working in the communistic idea about finally when we have a communistic uh, uh, system uh, Utopia will be there but of course corruption happens it can happen in all, all societies and one thing that I was interested in when it came to Abigail's actions <clears throat> that that she is basically starting to abuse her power and, and taking advantage of, yeah. of her position. Uh, that she comes from the yachts and she comes from a, a, a system where she has seen other people behave in this way. And if you look at the countries that have had a revolution against totalitarian states, uh, very often the new government is also starting to abuse their power. Mm -hmm. So it's not very easy to build a democratic and a solidaric society only because you're changing the one that are in the top. Because the, the corruption and, and how we are looking at um, uh, solidaric, uh, uh, solidaric uh, uh, behavior and so on is in the veins of, of, a, of, of a culture. So it's, it, it is a, it's an ongoing struggle to try to create an, a fair and an equal society. I really liked that because I come from Bulgaria that is a post-Soviet state mm -hmm. um, and it has like a very rough and weird connection to socialism and communism. Yeah. And my favorite part of the film was the, the storm scene, yeah. but not for the reasons that everyone is praising it. I just adore the... You know the sparring game between Woody Harrelson's character and Zlatko Buric's character. I just want to ask you, how did you build that scene with the quotations that they pull, pull on each other? What was the background for it? How much involvement did they have? Because Zlatko for me was just the, absolutely the star of that scene. Yeah. I, 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 I had a lot of fun shooting that part and it was a lot of fun working with Zlatko and Woody and they had so much fun. Mm. <clears throat> it basically comes from from the Sunday dinners that I had in my home. Yeah. Because my brother, he's a right-wing liberal, and he's eight years older than me. So from quite early age, when I was small, he started to challenge my mother and he, in her political standpoint. So you were listening into that. I was listening to that, and I was also participating when I got older. But So I've always had a loud political debate at home. But I have felt sometimes that the debate is like cheering for two different football teams rather than how do we improve society. Mm. And if I look at the 80s and I look at how we were like looking at the world from a Western and an Eastern perspective, it was like, okay, the liberal capitalism on one side and the idea about socialism and communism on the other side. And these two ideologies were bashing their head against each other. And if I want to criticize the left wings, I feel sometimes that they have forgotten about Marx. Mm -hmm. They have forgotten about that uh, uh, he thought it was great things with capitalism. Uh, and capitalism have actually, uh, or market economy, have built, uh, built uh, uh, up the society. And, uh, and the advantages of that we have to also admit. And it's almost like nowadays that the left wings are like uh, uh, rather just... just uh, 
talking about politics in a, in a way where you are you have an enemy and you don't want to admit anything any good things about in a more abstract way yeah exactly idealistic way yeah yeah but that was always part of communism in a way to be an ideal that didn't yeah. necessarily work in practice so it's very interesting to see your films tackle concrete particular examples of these yeah. um, paradoxes of an american communist and a ex-soviet <clears throat> yugoslav russian capitalist yeah I mean, I think that uh, um, what happened in Sweden during the 80s and so on, when you had social democracy and uh, a mixed economy mm. and also a strong belief in the state and a strong contract that the state should not be corrupt, it, it worked quite well for quite many years, a certain mm. kind of um, um, yeah, socialistic state, actually. <laughs> and But what I think that happens is that, of course, the, uh, we, we got very, very influenced by the liberal capitalistic economy in the US and in, in the UK. Yeah. And uh, um, today it's, it's almost this idea that, you know, everybody can be a president. You look at, look, you look at, you look on problems on the individual level. So, for an example, when, you, when, you, when we talk about problems with people begging on the streets in, in Sweden, in the beginning, we were saying, why is not the state doing anything about this? We, we looked at it as a problem, common problem that we have to deal with together. But it very quickly went down to, are you giving a beggar money or not? Which is just a hopeless way to look, look at the problem mm -hmm. because it's not going to solve anything. So um, there are extreme examples of, of, of course, uh, how, how a communistic state have been run and so on. Um, and but there is still there's still interesting that we have not reached a certain part where American can say socialism without being controversial. What mm -hmm. is controversial with socialism? I don't understand. Mm -hmm. So you you work a lot with the notion of dilemma and putting people in situations that cause dilemmas and exploring their surroundings. I'm just curious in the process of your writing or shooting or in the editing in any of these stages, do you find yourself I don't know how to say it, um, putting this like thought experiment to place. Yeah. And maybe do you um, see yourself as uh, finding them cathartic for yourself, as in making up a scenario that you're not involved personally? Yes. But does any, any part of you think, oh, gee, that's a pretty weird situation. Yes. Thank God this isn't happening to me. But at least now when I've wrote about it and made a scene, a sequence out of it, I might know how to deal with it afterwards. I think it's exactly like that. But sometimes it is also based on situations that I've experienced myself. Yeah. <clears throat> so, for example, in this film, when it becomes of uh, beauty and sexuality as a currency, I thought it was very interesting when I met my wife. And yes, she, and you had the fight about the bill. Exactly. Oh, this was pretty amazing how you put this. And actually, can I just jump in yeah. straight away of this? Um, there's something about the scenes that you make that you keep them long in duration. Mm. And that leaves a lot of space for different points of view. So the conversation with Carol Car and Yaya that you mentioned, that's a scene that spans out in the restaurant, in the hotel room, in the taxi. Yeah. So it, it's a long scene. Yeah. And yet you allow a lot of space for them, different arguments to evolve. Yeah. And also maybe you find the comical. Yeah. It becomes from, from tragic to comic to tragic yeah. again. So how do you work with duration and long takes uh, to maintain this rhythm and have this puncturing times and lines and everything? Well, I think it's... Uh, I think it's... Uh, 
uh, important to push your scene quite far. Uh, and I think that, you know, I come from a ski film background. Yeah. And when it comes to filming skiing, every day being on the mountain, you try to do something more spectacular than you've ever seen before. Yeah. And when I'm shooting, I think that is in the backbone of me. I want to make every scene the most spectacular scene of the whole film. So I'm pushing the shooting and I'm push, pushing the scenes. <clears throat> and uh, uh, I don't want anything to be there just to give you some information or so on. So the, the bill scene, there's actually a version of the bill scene that probably is 15 minutes longer. Yeah. So, uh, but uh, the first version of the film was three hours and 40 minutes. So we've cut it down one hour and 20 minutes. So this is something that is just a part of my method. Try to really push everything. Have another turning point, have another turning point. Sometimes when you have a really great setup, uh, then uh, you can you can use it, the scene can avalanche and it can go away to a place where you never expected. So how much of that is in the writing then in the script? It's it's a lot in the writing. But what I do when I write the script is that I I, I first of all I pitch the film the next project that I'm working with. Uh, I, I love to pitch the film from the beginning to the end when before I sit down and write it down. Mm. Then when I write it down, I start with the casting. And when I'm doing casting, we're doing improvisations around the set. So you involve the actors. In yeah. The and very often then it comes new information that is, wow, this is a great uh, line or, uh, yeah, it, it sounds sexy to talk about money. And like, wow, <laughs> what, what do you say as a man if you get that thrown on you? And so then, then there is a part of the improvisation process with actors that I put into the script. And then sometimes when you are on set and you're shooting and uh, you, you find out something new and it's like, wow. And it gives you so much more energy when you're on set and you are not only just covering up the script, but you're also actually, wow, we got a new great idea. Yeah. Let's put it in. And you also do a lot of test screenings and you like to involve the audience responses. How does that work? Well, it works in the way that uh, I sit together with the audience and I watch the film. Is it like a big audience? Uh, it have to be at least... 30 people or something, okay. because it have to be a body of uh, like the audience that is, uh, how to say, simulating a, a, a larger crowd, because it changes the rhythm a lot. So when I'm sitting alone and editing, I edit myself, uh, I edit together with people, but mostly by myself, then it's one kind of rhythm when I'm sitting by myself. And as soon as you're watching it together with an audience, you realize, ah, I have to go out earlier there, or I have to push that scene longer, then you can create a great rhythm. But it was interesting because I had a screening in Berlin with people that considered themselves film experts. Yeah. <laughs> and they were they the, mean film critics. They were the most <laughs> passive audience I have ever seen. So they were like sitting like this, you know, not a sound. I, had, I mean, I have screened uh, 20 percent even if it was 20 minutes longer. People have always reacted on the film very strongly. And uh, there are parts where people actually are screaming straight out in their yeah. screening. But with this audience, they were like, hmm, you know, like, and it was the most boring audience. And I just felt, you are the ones that are responsible of destroying cinema culture. 
<laughs> to be fair, um, I have to share when I was at press screening at Cannes, yeah. it was a lot of fun. So lots of people laughed alongside yeah. me, but I was sitting in the front row and I laughed very loudly during the the, the Marxist sparring uh-huh. scene and a French lady next to me. So another film critic, she shushed me. Powerful. She really did shush uh-huh. me. So I was thinking about that. What? what? This, this is what you're wrong with you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, okay. My last question would be about um, the ending of the film. And we talked about how social hierarchies are supposed to destroyed at the end but then it kind of rebuilt anew and mm. some mistakes are being repeated yeah. so do you think can anything change and if film should be the one to change anything well first of all i think that the film is changing everything all the time and uh, i had a teacher at film school and there was one of the students asking him does cinema change the world and he says, yes, it does. But the problem is that all cinema is changing the world. Mm. So uh, the culture that we are living in is influencing us and giving us thoughts on how we look on ourselves and how we look on the world. So Top Gun Maverick is changing the world much more than what Triangle of Sadness is doing because many more people are going to mm. watch Top Gun Maverick. And if I look at the message that Top Gun Maverick have, I get kind of upset because it's like recruiting people to join the army. It's a nationalistic idea about the country. The enemy is like someone that is uh, not even represented with yeah. people. Uh, uh, and um, uh, But my idea has been like, how do you create a Trojan horse? You create something that is like wild and entertaining, but at the same time, thought provoking. and. Uh, for me to make movies is to discuss society and how we look at ourselves and who we can be, etc., etc. Uh, what was your first question? Sorry. Yeah. Uh, it, it, can things change in the social reality and the hierarchy, or you don't think that's an important question to ask? No, no, Maybe. No, of course, it's it's the it's the, the crucial thing of communicating yeah. because it's just you can compare it with if you have a discussion around a table and you have a dinner together with friends. You don't say obvious things all the time mm. because then it's horrible. Or you don't <laughs> only talk about the weather. If you if you communicate something, you also think there's an opinion that should be pushed in a certain direction. And this is, goes to the same thing with, with art, of course. So Ruben Austin is an optimist. I am definitely am, but you know that was one of the uh, it was fun because I think it was like uh, the French left-wing press. They, they hate my films always. And <laughs> it's okay. But uh, then it was someone who said, I definitely don't want to have a dinner with Ruben uh, Oslo because he's such a misanthrope. And, <laughs> and uh, he's, I want to tell him he's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, they won't have the chance because you're spending your dinners in a much more fun way. Excellent. So thank you, Ruben, for us, for spending time with us okay. and looking forward to the release of the film. Okay, thank you so much. So, is this runway casting for a grumpy brand or a smiley brand? So it's a grumpy brand, yeah. Congratulations! Show me that Balenciaga look. Suddenly I'm dressed in something way less expensive. It's H&M, yay! Balenciaga, and H&M, Balenciaga, and H&M! Looks paid for the tickets. Not bad, huh? <laughs> so what do you do? I sell shit. The success of a luxury cruise mainly depends on you. I don't want to hear anybody saying no. It's always yes, sir, yes, ma'am. I command you, enjoy the moment. No. No? No. <laughs> what? You say no to me? No, no. 
Oh, sorry, it's yes. It, yeah, no. Yes. Go in. Yes! <laughs> the saints. Do you think it's possible to wash them? I don't think that's possible, ma'am, because this is a motorized vessel. Yeah. So we don't have any sails. It was sails. Yes. Well, then, in that case, we will clean the sails. Yes. Of course. Yes. So that was great. Thanks so much for arranging that, Savina, and uh, getting that great tape with uh, bigger directors at, at London this year. Um, I really like the first question. That, that seemed to set the tone very well because it was almost kind of like... It's always difficult to find an opening question that isn't some variation of, so what made you want to make this movie or how did you come to make this movie? But, you know, you got kind of straight into it, you know. And I have to say, I'm not as optimistic as Ruben Osland is, you know. And that that it's, it's weird because I was reading a little bit of, you know, his biography and he's the same age as me. And, like, decisions about my life as I'm getting older are more and more defined by that cynicism, I think. Or maybe what I call kind of pragmatic nihilism, but... I mean, I, I don't know. Do you, do you do you think watching the film itself? I mean, it's obviously a satire of liberal capitalism, and you're you're um, you know a little bit younger. So, do do you have a, a much more of a sense of optimism in watching his movies? It's always interesting to think about that when a older, slightly older director makes a comment on younger generations as well as his own generation and different classes and, you know, make comments that would transcend these supposed differences. But I think Ruben is one of the people that really does it well. It didn't feel like he was far reaching or I didn't feel that he was being cynical about stuff. And that was quite uh, new to me because I recently rewatched The Square and that film seemed way more cynical. And that's why I was so perplexed. Um, I thought that giving the pound door to The Square was a more self-congratulatory move on behalf of Cannes uh, jury than Triangle of Sadness because Triangle of Sadness was a lot of fun. Yeah, I think it was just a super fun film, the most fun I've had at a film, I think, this year so far. And that's a pretty good, um, yeah, pretty good way of wrapping a film with a prize because of its being fun and being smart and having something to say. But it's interesting about the opening question because... Ruben is a great conversationalist and he's really good at interviews. Whenever you listen to him or read him, he's always very fun to be around, but he does recount the same anecdotes and jokes and origin stories as many directors do, right? So it was quite a challenge to um, yeah, dance around them and not let him tell <laughs> tell them again because they would just eat up all our time. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. You yeah. probably noticed how I had to stop him from saying from telling the story of how he fought with his wife and that was originally the origin of the film. <laughs> I felt a bit uncomfortable doing that, but then I think it, there was a moment of mutual recognition there that the conversation is not going to go the usual way and then he became more open. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, it was interesting that. And 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 I think yeah, also you got him to sort of that place where you know, there's the question of what 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 really is the impact of a film like this beyond the fact that it's it's fun to poke fun at the super rich. It's just that it's just a, like a super easy target. 
And if you think, I think I agree with you, you know, if you look back at Oslin's earlier films, things like The Square and Force Majeure, and even back to Play, which is a really dark, dark film, there is an, an implied criticism of the Western audiences who are going to turn up to watch this film in some ways. I just kept thinking about while watching it and laughing, I kept thinking, oh, who am I if I laugh at this point? Who am I for laughing? And the film makes you ask yourself that question in in ways that are both quite... Some, sometimes it feels didactic, but most of the times it doesn't. So it's fluctuating throughout the film. And I really enjoyed that fluctuation. I thought it was also very well calibrated. So um, you would let loose and laugh more freely, but then you would ask your questions and check your privileges as well. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. But it's also it's it's not just that. It's the it's it's a reminder, isn't it, as of how we contribute to the the maintenance of the hierarchies. That maybe you know, if you're sort of on the center left, which a lot of you know film critical audiences probably are, especially at fe- festivals. We might pretend that we want to blow all of that up and, you know, reduce inequality and say, well, the capitalist system is broken down and we need to do something about it. But really, you know, and I include myself in this, it's that sense of, well, actually, do we really want that? It's okay to laugh at the super rich, but I don't really want much to change for me, if that's at all possible, you know? Yeah, since we're benefiting from the system, rarely people who benefit from the system would want to see it changed. And that's the biggest challenge, you know, kind of separate ourselves and maybe try to imagine us outside the system. But as the film shows itself, you know, even if you are put outside the system, there's something inherently human, which is a scary thought to have, but maybe inherent something inherently human in the way that we construct capitalist societies and hierarchies and just, you know, this thought and this interesting um, over overwhelming idea that uh, capitalist realism is impossible to unthink and undo and it's just permeating everything that we do and that we will do it's possible to imagine life without it yeah you put it very nicely there in terms of the the context of capitalist realism and being outside of that is difficult is a thing that's difficult to think of but even if you can and, and like this this film sets up uh, a moment where that breaks down obviously but then what happens is you know us as hum- human social animals it asks the question do we inherently reorganize in terms of the strong dominating the weak and strong might not be you know in a physical sense in the obvious material sense but might be but is more to do with the the ability to control the power dynamic in a in a certain situation so that's one of the ambivalences of the of the film and again not to give anything away but the film doesn't really resolve that does it in terms of the ending yeah that was also i was trying to get at precisely that ambivalence when i asked ruben about um the desire and the impossibility to articulate our own desire. Like, do we really want to change anything or do we think that we want to change it? Um, so there's always this double bind of desire um, that is that can be quite a challenge to oneself and to challenge a challenge to oneself's ethics as well. It's funny because part of me wanted to sort of say, does Osland absolve himself at the end of the movie of being 
definitive about that because I don't think this this is the thing with a movie like this is it really expressly an anti-capitalist film because if it was then the 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 rich would fall you know what I mean and there would be a sort of utopia to to aim for but you know it doesn't offer that at the end again I'm trying not to give a spoiler away but you know what I mean it doesn't sort of have a definitive yes if we get to this place then things will be better it isn't like that at all so it's it is sort of uh ambivalent so this is where my challenge to his hopefulness uh, comes in you know <laughs> well i think there's a lot to be said about his own background and upbringing and growing up in sweden in a relatively you know good condition um social in a social class kind of way for sure impact that and being being a filmmaker that has become becoming as well like more and more successful with the years and that he's learned how to to play the game well i i talked i, I talked to a friend of mine who had an amazing interview with ruben on uh, foro during burnburn week um he's a swedish critic called jakob also and we talked a lot about ruben's skills to play the game and I think it was really amazing that Jakob made this um, comparison between Ruben and, um, and a football player. That he really, really, like, really knows how and learns throughout to play the game long term. And I think that's really good. And what I wanted to add to this was that I think his films do retain some sort of a soul. Somehow, um, I'm quite sympathetic more to Triangle of Sadness than the square for example that there is there's some some sort of hope yeah i don't he, he says at the end of the interview that he what he believes that cinema can change the world one way or another but um in a way it's a form of expression and if it expresses some sort of hopefulness that's still fine and forces us to ask ourselves questions it doesn't pour its own ethics on top of us so that's pretty good yeah it definitely leaves the the audience to bring their own sense of what they think um happened at at the end or or what sense of human nature they can garner from the 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 question that is being asked i suppose at the very at the very end um yeah just to wrap up i don't know i know we talked about unrest being one of uh, your favorites earlier on in the in the first episode but now we've come to the end is there one or two films that you want to mention as as your highlights of the of the week so i think biggest standout and lots of people will be hearing about it is after sun since it comes out in november and november is also the time where you can also see triangle of sadness in in cinemas if you miss them at the festival so i think these are two good films that i can recommend and obviously charlotte wells's debut film is been given a lot of special treatment since Cannes as the the hidden gem of the festival and it's truly deserving. This is a story of a, a father-daughter relationship um, with Paul Mescal in it. Um, set in the 90s, middle to late 90s I think, um, in a Turkish resort at what seems like an endless summer on a holiday that the father and daughter spend together annually it seems but they don't seem to hang out as much outside of that one week at the end of summer so it captures a very specific chronotope but um, cusp of becoming older Sophie um, played by Frankie Corio 
who's a newcomer, non-professional actor until now, and in her first professional role, um, is 11 years old. So it's a particular, particular moment when things begin to change for a, for a, a young girl. And it's quite lovely. It's really lovely to dwell in the, in the film's world because of the expressive colors, the slowness of the tempo. And yet the film is punctured by these outwardly almost rave scenes that introduce another chronotope where we see um, adult Sophie looking at her memory. So the film is very early on framed as a, as a revisiting of a memory. So it, it says a lot about cinema in its relationship to memory and memory building and memory retaining and all the ontology and indexical nature of it, I think, in a very moving and profound way. Oh, fantastic! And that's the that director's Charlotte Wells. And again, it's a debut film, isn't it? So, and it's it's yes. got a lot of yes. yes, a lot of good reviews in 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 the in the festival circuit. Yeah, absolutely. It was it, it had only two screenings in Cannes, so it was very difficult to get at. But after the first screening, people were just over the moon talking about it all the time. There was a lot of buzz, which made me initially skeptical, but. Since then, I've seen right. it three times, and I, oh, wow. I think the buzz is completely worth it. I, I really recommend. Yeah, very good. Mm-hmm. And what, um, what did you make of the um, the Mia Hansen Love film this time around? Because I was like, I love her movies, and and Father of My Children is still my favorite of hers. But I, and you know, Berg, Bergman Island, I liked, but not didn't love. So how's One Fine Morning? Mm, One Fine Morning really stuck with me. I think it was just sublime the way Leia Seydoux embodied that character and the levity with which she handled herself throughout the film. I was really impressed by that. And I I have a problem talking about Mia Hansen love films, actually. I have to be completely (laughs) open about it because she makes me feel so many things that I I have trouble articulating. For me, she's, um, I like to call her a director of the ineffable because I can barely muster <laughs> two sentences about her films properly. So I'm, I'm more interested in what you might say. Yeah, sometimes there are directors that like that, or even just singular films where it's kind of like, yeah, I felt everything about it, but I'm not really sure what to say, you know? <laughs> so uh, that's, that's always uh, interesting, trying to put that into, put those kinds of experiences into intellectual uh, terms. I dare say that if I have... If I manage to get a quick recording in this evening about Glass Onion, I'll I'll have enough to say about it. But maybe I'll get a uh, a five minute spot from the red carpet on the Cinematologist, which would be very unlike what we do here. But you know, you've got to take these opportunities. Have you have you applied already for that? Yeah, no, I got a ticket through Ravensbourne because of the partnership. I think it's still embargoed, isn't it? Still embargoed, Glass Onion. All right. Yeah, no, but my my experience of going it's, to the premiere is it- isn't embargoed. That's for sure. <laughs> no, 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 of course, that's what I mean. Yeah. But I wanted to say that I've already seen yeah. reactions on Twitter saying yeah. that it was good. Right, so okay. I did enjoy Knives Out. Yeah. I thought it was it's fun. fun yeah, yeah, yeah. smart. Yeah, it's fun. But I had one big problem with it, though. But Oh, yeah, and what's that? Just pinning everything on the, um, pinning everything on the immigrant. I thought that was a bit... Uh, yeah, a bit on the nose. I had a trouble with that one. <laughs> 
you. Well, thanks so much for uh, doing these couple of episodes, Savina. It's been great to have you on. And yeah, I'm sure you'll be on again uh, soon. And good luck with everything that you're doing in terms of the criticism and finishing off the PhD, of course. Oh, thank you so much. This is uh, very generous of you to say. I hope I get to be in the cinematologist soon again, um, talking all things film. Great. See you soon. (laughs) Bye. So that is it. Our London Film Festival coverage comes to an end. Thanks very much for uh, listening. I hope you've enjoyed that. I get the feeling maybe I've been a little bit downbeat uh, in parts because, um, I don't know, there are a couple of things that, that fell through. And alongside that, I haven't been able to get to all of the um, films that I'd wanted to. But again, as you know, we are a podcast that is independent and we do this out of a labor of love and you know myself and neil and savina were all doing um full-time stuff at the, at the same time so it was really great to get the interviews that we did and yeah i think that the there was a lot there were there were a lot of great films at the festival um this year and a lot of the titles are ones that we will pick up on the cinematologists as they get released um, into the future so you know a lot of the the, the the program you will hear us talking about probably over the next uh, six months to a year yeah just a word on last night's frivolities yeah it was it was great I got a VIP ticket through the BFI partnerships department I suppose you could call it very luckily because I've just started at Ravensbourne so it was a nice uh, a nice little treat to get but it was really really odd I, I we sort of turned up at this venue which was a, sort of an hour and a half before the um the film itself started which was on this kind of rooftop bar in a, in a fancy hotel just down the road from the bfi and i kind of walked in and um was heading towards the elevator to get up to this uh, to this bar where the the tickets were being dished out and um who's in front of me but the uh but the former director general of the bbc amongst many other roles uh, greg dyke so I, uh, you know, he was, <laughs> the funny thing was he was kind of looking at his phone and he was checking the scores, the football scores that is. So I kind of made a joke and said, yeah, no, I'm, I'm looking at the scores too and uh, introduced myself and this, <laughs> spent the first half an hour in this bar talking to Greg Dyke, which is very interesting. And then obviously lots of people were coming to talk to him who were bigwigs in the media industry. So I didn't drop the fact, you know, the, the fact that I'd like him to come on the podcast <laughs> in the first five minutes in fact i didn't i didn't mention it at all really yeah i'm always kind of wary of uh, that's my first go-to thing you know it's a kind of classic cliched podcaster move come on my podcast but yeah so so lots of interesting people um from different sectors i think in the media industry re- related to the bfi so i spoke to the head of archiving at the bfi um and then other colleagues who are represent universities who also have a partnership with the with the bfi people that I knew in that in that regard then we all headed off down to the um to to the Royal Festival Hall and yeah walked down the red carpet although I have to say we were kind of ushered very very quickly past people people like Catherine Han and Janelle Monet who was up on the stage and then Ryan Johnson was literally there signing autographs and we were you know trying to get a quick a few quick pictures in and what have you very badly because they were the security were like ushering us on and you know clearly they knew who the people of importance were let, let's say but it was very sort of surrealistic to kind of go through that um, goldfish bowl for you know two or three minutes and 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 see literally in the center of it all what what takes place and all the cameras and uh, you know it, it was funny because 
I was talking to the colleagues that we were with, we were just sort of talking to each other. I wish I'd have kind of stopped and sort of soaked it all in a little bit more than, than I did. But then went into the, uh, the Royal Festival Hall. All the cast were introduced. So Daniel Craig was there, Janelle Monet, as I say, um, Kate Hudson, um, Dave Batista, all of them, they, they, you know, more or less, Ed Norton as well. And Ryan Johnson just sort of very quickly introduced the film. Then we got, got into it. Um, yeah, and it's embargoed, so I can't say anything about it. And I'm definitely not going to spoil it because uh, in the post-screening Q&A afterwards, um, Daniel Craig was told off by Ryan Johnson to not give any spoilers away when he was talking. So that was quite amusing. But yeah, it's in keeping with the first one, but it's definitely a, a, a lockdown film i think that was famously the production was sort of completed in this sort of isolated environment um which for the cast one of the things that they were saying that that kind of bred this this sort of theater troupe mentality where they were all sort of sequestered off together to make to make this movie so it'd be interesting to see what people make of it when it comes out because it does have that it does have that flavor of a film that's that was made in a unique situation during uh, during lockdown and then after that went on to a a party which was probably i don't know maybe fourth or fifth rung down in terms of the 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 level of parties and access that that people could have you know it was mainly sort of critics i saw a few faces there that that i knew got drenched on the on the walk from uh, the bfi up into london but you know it was good fun and not something that i would usually go to and i didn't feel like i was going to tape something from the venue itself but it just didn't feel like it appropriate but but yeah it, it there wasn't really the opportunity to do anything like that, so that's why I'm, I'm kind of giving you a little bit of a um, a few retrospective thoughts on uh, on last night. But that does it for LFF this year. Um, there's a couple of films that I still want to see on the on the press and industry digital platform, so that's available for a week. So there may be a couple of films that I might talk about on the bonus coming up uh, for those of you who are interested. Yeah, please, if you enjoy what we do on the Cinematologist podcast, please consider. Uh, joining our patreon site for as little as two pound a month you get access to our monthly newsletter which is pretty extensive as people have have told us and access to bonus content as and when we can uh, make it Um, i just want to thank everybody who came on to the to the show during um the two episodes you know everybody's on on tight schedules but it's really nice when people take the time out to do that and a big thank you of course to savina petkova who's been my guest host for the last couple of episodes it'll be great to have her back on again in the future so that will do it thanks very much for listening this has been the cinematologist podcast